0: Thank you very much, Alice. Um, It's really great to be with you this morning. Let's just uh, pray as we turn to this profound passage together. Lord God, we're aware that we're on uh, holy ground this morning. So my simple prayer is, Lord, that you would reveal to us wonderful truths about your son from your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The religious trial Was over. We heard about it last week, didn't we? The political trial was about to begin. Our passage opens with the Lord Jesus being led by the Jewish leaders towards the Herodian palace where the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, awaited. We heard last week that Jesus had been betrayed with a kiss. His boldest disciple denied even knowing him. He'd been mocked, he'd been beaten by the temple police. He'd faced a sham trial by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And through it all, he'd stood alone, alone, if you like, in the fortress of the enemy. His closest friends cowering away in fear. And in this chapter, Luke, uh, the gospel writer, he works a bit like a master film director. He kind of cuts between groups of people, different perspectives, different individuals as they gaze upon, as they look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, as they make a judgment about who they think he is. And we see a variety of responses, don't we? Some are viciously cruel. Some are apathetic, not bothered. Others are tender and loving and loyal. And as we move through the passage, Luke puts us right there in the courtroom, doesn't he? right there among the crowd, right there as we walk alongside the blood-soaked Lord Jesus on the road to the cross, right there looking up at him as he hangs there, crucified, right there by the graveside as we watch his battered body gently laid to rest. And you can almost sense him saying to his readers, well now it's your turn, now it's your turn to decide what you make Of Jesus. What do you make of the king? There are four main scenes that Luke focuses in on. The first is the courtroom, the second is the road, the third is the cross, and the fourth is the tomb. And we're going to allow Luke to take us to each of those places, trusting that God will speak to us through his word as we go there. So, first the courtroom. What's remarkable about the courtroom scene is that Jesus is recorded as saying only four. Words throughout the entire process. The Jewish leaders accuse him of subverting the nation, of opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar, of claiming to be a king. You see, only Pilate could authorize the death penalty. And so these men, they sought to twist his arm, to manipulate him, to bend him to their will. They wanted Jesus dead, they wanted him off the scene. They wanted him forgotten about. So much so that they were prepared to tell blatant lies in order to achieve their goal. The idea that Jesus was a political threat to Pilate or to Caesar, it was laughable, quite frankly. The only one occasion uh, his followers had been violent, we heard about last week, didn't we? And Jesus had quickly rebuked him and healed the man he injured. Jesus had ample opportunity to stir dissent. He had plenty of followers, but he didn't do so. And what of the charge that Jesus opposed the payment of taxes to Caesar? Well, a quick glance back to Luke chapter 20 shows that was a total fabrication as well because Jesus had specifically told people to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked him. You have said so, said Jesus. Imagine being charged with a grievous offense for which the penalty is death. Imagine standing there in the courtroom looking up at the judge with no lawyer to defend you, without even taking the stand yourself. I was struck as I read this passage how little Jesus seems to do to defend himself, even against these completely false accusations. I'd have been livid, to be honest. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Jesus knows the truth is clear and plain. Even to Pilate, it's obvious to see he's been hated without a cause. You know, we we look back at his life, we were thinking about it this morning in our communion service. It was one of love, it was one of grace, it was one of mercy, even to the outcast, to the vulnerable, to the sinner. He traveled around the country doing good, healing people, feeding people, giving hope, giving life. And despite all the hostility, he'd gained a lot of Followers, people who did love him, people who were loyal to him, who loved him dearly. And that love and devotion, well, it seemed to cause something ugly to well up in the hearts of the Jewish leaders. Envy, bitterness. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Pilate recognized it. He, he, he said he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. Envy is an ugly ugly thing. Bible teacher John Stott describes envy like this. Envy is the reverse side of a coin called vanity. Nobody is ever envious of others who is not first proud of himself. And those Jewish leaders, they were proud. They resented the authority Christ possessed. They felt it was a threat to their position in society. And so this hatred, this envy, it grew, it bubbled up within them until it manifested in these bloodthirsty lies and cries for death. Very sadly, there remain many in our world today who resent the Lord Jesus, who resent the claims that he makes on their lives, his call for obedience, his claim to be the true king over and above every other king. I remember back at university, a guy who I spoke to a little bit about Christian things, and he hated the idea that God wanted certain things for his life. He hated the idea that becoming a Christian would mean conceding that his life was not his own. That idea repelled him, it was repulsive to him. To to this guy, Jesus was a rival, a threat to him living his life his way by his rules, and so he shut him out. There are many people who want to get rid of Jesus, to kill off any thought of him, to wash their hands of him. Why? Because his presence can actually be unsettling. It disrupts our selfishness. It threatens our idols. It calls us to repentance. And the Jewish leaders couldn't live with that. And what's striking is that as Christ stands in the silence, the calls for his death, they grow louder and louder. Yet Pilate concedes I find no basis for charge against this man. It's interesting to see Pilate's reaction, isn't it? He wasn't quite so hostile to Jesus. In fact, he's actually quite apathetic. He's similar to many people today in that regard. Uh, Pilate just wants to get Jesus off his hands. He wants to shirk the responsibility of having to declare him innocent or guilty. To be honest, he'd rather not think about it. It makes him a little uncomfortable. He just wants peace and quiet. Jesus is little more than an inconvenience. And so actually, he thinks of a solution. I'll send him off to Herod. Herod's in town. He'll deal with him for me. And then I won't have to be so concerned about this situation. He might get me off the hook. Now, King Herod was looking forward to meeting Jesus, we heard in our passage, didn't we? He was hoping to see some kind of spectacle, some kind of show. What could Christ offer him? What excitement could he bring to his life? And when Jesus arrives, he, he badges him with lots of questions. He gives the illusion of genuine interest. But what he really wants is the signs without any of the substance. He wants the miracles without the man, the remarkable without the repentance. And again, Jesus doesn't utter a word. He stands in silence. He sees right through the act. Like Pilate, Herod didn't really care that much about the truth. He cared about himself. He cared about his own position, his own influence, about pleasure and power. And when Jesus offered him neither, not even a good show, he mocked him as a pretend king. He dressed him up in regal clothing, and he sent him back to Pilate in some sort of twisted, dark joke. We read that Pilate and Herod became friends that day. There are plenty of people who are like Herod, or like Pilate, they see Jesus as a means to an end, a way to to pleasure and power. People who aren't really interested in the truth but will use religion, will use politics to maximize their own personal interest. This chapter is full of people like that, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, Herod, all see truth as secondary to their will, to their own desire. And the result of that is a horrific miscarriage of justice, a trial where a man who is declared innocent multiple times by multiple parties ends up being sentenced to the most horrendous death. An innocent man, more than that, God incarnate, God in flesh, condemned to die. Maybe this morning you've come here and you're, uh, you're not normally a churchgoer, but it's around Easter and you thought you'd come along and you're, you're very welcome. We want to make you so welcome here at Crescent. Perhaps you're suspicious, a little bit suspicious of religion. You're rather skeptical of it all, but it's Easter and you just thought you'd show up. Well, I'd argue this passage actually gives you every right to be suspicious of religion. It shows us the ugliness of religion when it's untethered from truth. It can be a warped thing, can't it? A destructive thing. Pilate, ever the politician, he suggests punishing Jesus and releasing him, desperately hoping that will somehow appease the Jewish leaders. But the crowds start to get involved at this point. They get more and more riled up. Away with this man, they shout. Release Barabbas to, to us. Crucify him. Crucify him. And we read their shouts prevailed. Luke puts us amongst the crowd, doesn't he? We can picture their twisted faces, the anger, the raised fists, the chaotic chanting, the jeering. It would have seemed as though the whole world has turned on Jesus. The one who just days earlier, on Palm Sunday, arrived in the city with open arms, with cries of Hosanna. There was an irrationality to this response now, wasn't there? A pack mentality, a frenzied hysteria. Man's verdict on God, on the Son of God, sent to rescue, sent to save, was a baying mob calling for blood. And Pilate caves to their demands. The pretense of caring about political stability in these Jewish leaders, it was exposed by them calling for Barabbas to be released. Because we read of Barabbas, he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. It was all lies, it was a fabrication, and they didn't care about showing it. Jesus, the one who had done nothing to deserve death, takes the place of a rebel sinner, Barabbas. In some ways, it's a tragic moment, but in another way, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The good news message of the cross. If you're a Christian, rejoice in this this morning that Christ has taken your place. The Apostle Paul writes, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has taken our place as Christians. If you're not a Christian, Jesus longs to be your substitute, to take your place, just as he was the substitute for Barabbas. Everyone else in this courtroom scene is desperately seeking after their own interests, yet here is one who willingly seeks the interests of others, who stands in silence in the courtroom. The prophet Isaiah writes this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Maybe you are fed up with religion, you're fed up with politics, you're sick of being let down by self interested people, you're worn out by injustice. Well, can I encourage you to look at the man standing silently, standing with dignity as this storm of hostility rages about him? Can I ask you, what do you think of him? What if God is exactly like Jesus? And what if Jesus is the king we all need? The Gospel writer Luke now transports us to our second scene, to the road. He puts us right there as Jesus walks towards the place of crucifixion. Jesus at this point would have been in in desperate pain in physical distress from the flogging, from the scourging. Sometimes life doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? It can seem like a random series of unfortunate events. Things that you thought would be straightforward turn out not to be. That job that seems so secure, uh, it falls through. The people you love get sick. The list goes on, doesn't it? And to some onlookers on the road that day, this event seemed a little bit like that. Just another unfortunate event. A misunderstood young man condemned to die, but such is life, they might have thought. It's all a matter of chance, some people are gonna get hurt, other people are gonna get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. Take Simon of Cyrene, for example. Simon was an African man from modern-day Tripoli, and he happened to be walking along the road at the time that Jesus was being led to the place of crucifixion. All of a sudden, he's seized by cruel Roman soldiers and forced to carry the cross of Christ this would have been humiliating for Simon. Everyone would now associate him with the condemned man whose cross he was carrying. Wrong place, wrong time, perhaps just another unfortunate event. Well, it turns out that day may well have transformed Simon's life and the lives of his family. You see, Simon was the father of Rufus, who may well have been the same Rufus recorded as being a member of the church in Rome, whose mother is said to have been a mother to the Apostle Paul. As Simon looked at Jesus, he would have seen a man covered in blood. His back would have looked like a plowed field. He would have seen the crown of thorns that wreathed his brow. He would have seen a man too weak to carry the cross. A man who on the face of it was weak and powerless, the victim of circumstances beyond his control. Yet when Simon heard him speak, It didn't seem like that. He seemed like he was in complete control. Did you notice how he interacted with with the woman who wailed and mourned at the roadside? Jesus said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Then he quoted a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Hosea concerning the coming judgment of God. Here was a man, though bloodied and battered, he was warning those wailing about what would happen on a future day, what would happen to those who rejected his kingship. Jesus looked nothing like a king, but he was claiming to be a king. He was concerned that those around him might recognize that, might understand the significance of his death, might appreciate what was being done to him and the consequences of it. He wasn't just a random victim. He was God's anointed king, the long-promised Messiah, the savior of the world, sent from heaven to rescue rebellious men and women. Yet here he was, executed by his own, the very people he came to save. It's a horrendous act, isn't it? Creation. People like you and me lashing out against our creator. Spurning the kindness of God. And Jesus is very clear to these women that such rejection has consequences. Simon would have heard all of this. I'm sure he was struck by the authority of this man. And maybe, just maybe, the the shame of having to carry the cross gave way to a sense of honor, to a sense of privilege. Perhaps he came to see that carrying the cross for the king of kings was a profound and beautiful thing. That sharing in the sufferings of Christ, well, there was no higher calling than that. Maybe this morning you feel a little bit lost in life, cast a sea, cast adrift on the sea of life. Maybe it seems like there isn't any rhyme or, or reason to your existence. Well, can I encourage you to take a look at this bloodied man, walking purposefully towards the cross, transforming Simon's life as he goes, giving him meaning and purpose, warning of a coming judgment. What do you think of him? What if God is exactly like Jesus? And what if Jesus is the king that we all need? And so we turn to scene three. Luke brings us to the foot of the cross to that forsaken hill on the edge of the city, the place called the Skull. Luke's language is actually very concise. He doesn't dwell on the sheer horror of the crucifixion itself, the nails, the agony, the blood. Instead, he draws our attention to the very heart of Christ in those moments of searing pain and distress. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Surely, those words must cause some ripple of response, even in the hardest of hearts. How can he say something like that? When someone hurts me, even in the mildest of ways, I struggle to have a kind thought towards them. Maybe you're the same. Yet here is Jesus praying for those, driving the nails through his hands and through his feet. Praying for those, raising him up on planks of wood to suffer a torturous Death. How can he say that? One Bible teacher describes this moment like this. One more proof of Christ's infinite love for sinners. The Lord Jesus is indeed most pitiful, most compassionate, most gracious. None are too wicked to, for him to care for. None are too far gone in sin for his almighty heart to take interest in their souls. Is that you this morning? You feel like you're too far gone? Well, listen to the words of Jesus on the cross. Boundless love. And yet the cruelty continued, didn't it? Again, we see Luke drawing our attention to the groups of people standing dotted around the cross. But well, we see the rulers sneering, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's chosen one. The soldiers mocked, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even one of the criminals crucified alongside Jesus joined in with the insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The same theme, it's repeated over and over. If you're so great, save yourself. Prove it. Come down from the cross and show us you really are God's king. They don't see the tragic irony of it, do they? You see, the only way for Christ to save others to fulfill his role as God's king, was to stay put, to hang there and bear the punishment for my sin and for your sin in his own body on the tree. If Christ came down from the cross, all hope would have been lost. Each one of us would have to pay for our sin ourselves. Each of us would have had to rightly face the just judgment of God for our rebellion. And so, praise God, he stayed that we might be saved. And suddenly it all seemed to fall into place for the second criminal. He'd heard the prayer Jesus prayed for the soldiers. He'd watched him face the insults with dignity. This was no ordinary man, he concluded. Don't you fear God, he said to the other criminal. We're getting what our deeds deserve, we deserve this. This man's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I was struck by this man's request, remember me. You see, this criminal's body in all likelihood was going to a mass grave. There'd be no gravestone, and in a few years no one would remember him at all. He'd be lost to the sands of time. But in his dying moments, he had come to see that Jesus was a king who would remember him. Jesus was a king who could forgive a wretched sinner like he was. And so there was nothing he could do in those moments but admit his guilt and turn to Jesus for mercy. And he found the heart of Christ to be a place overflowing with mercy, full and free forgiveness and a royal welcome into the kingdom of God. The promise of paradise that very day The moment he died with Christ in paradise, freedom from agony, from tears, from sin, with Christ in paradise. And that same offer, it's available to each and every person here this morning. King Jesus wants to remember you. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter what you've done, to give you meaning, to give you purpose, to give you deep-rooted joy that even death itself cannot take from you. And he holds out that forgiveness to you as a gift. A royal welcome into his kingdom that starts now and runs into eternity. And all it requires, you know, all that it requires is for, for you to acknowledge your sin and your guilt and turn to Jesus for mercy. This passage shows us repeatedly that he will never turn you away. What is tragic is that both criminals were equally close to Jesus, weren't they? They observed the same events, but the outcome was tragically different. Darkness came over the whole land. The sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. God the Son suffered alone in the darkness, bearing the weight of divine wrath, forsaken by his Father so that the dying criminal, so that you and I might never have to be. He died to pay our debt in full. And the torn curtain in the temple testifies to a work completed, a trail blazed right into the very presence of God full and free access by faith, a restored relationship with our creator, grace available to everyone. Luke directs our attention to yet another observer standing at the foot of the cross and looking up. The Roman centurion, he couldn't deny what he'd seen and heard, and he praised God, saying, surely this was a righteous man. What about you? As you've stood this morning at the foot of the cross, as you've listened to Jesus asking his father to forgive those driving the nails into his hands, as you've watched him stay put despite the taunting, as you've seen him show mercy to the dying criminal, then dying alone in the darkness for my sin and yours, what do you think of him? What if God is exactly like Jesus? And what if Jesus is the king that we all need? Finally, as our passage draws to a close, Luke takes us to our fourth scene, to the graveside, to the garden tomb. And strikingly, our attention is drawn once again to a Jewish religious leader, to a member of the very council that had viciously sought to eliminate Jesus. But we read that he was a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. His fellow council members had idolized their power, their position, their privilege. Maybe in the past Joseph had cared about those things also. We read in John's Gospel that he was a secret disciple because he feared the Jews. He'd also secured for himself an expensive garden tomb which suggests he valued legacy and reputation among his peers. But now we see a man who's who's come to realize, who's come to appreciate that there is nothing more valuable in the world than Christ. If Christ was prepared to face the humiliation, to go through suffering for him, to die on a cross for him, so that he might be welcomed into the kingdom of God, then for Joseph, no act of loyalty, no sacrifice was too great for him to make. And so he risks it all, his career, his very life, by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. You can be sure that such a public act would have become known. Joseph had directly associated himself with a man that his colleagues despised. I think the tenderness with which he treats Jesus' body is beautiful. Beautiful. He takes it down from the cross. He wraps it in a linen cloth and he places it in his own tomb. His own legacy doesn't matter. The king matters. And this was a tomb fit for a king. It was a beautiful act of loyalty and love. Joseph counts the cost, takes up his cross and follows Jesus. At a time in our culture where loyalty to Jesus can be costly, may these acts inspire us to stand with the king who gave his oil, for, his all for us. And so as we stand by the tomb, as we see this member of the Jewish council treat Jesus' body with tenderness and dignity, as we consider the wide range of responses we've seen in this passage, from the chief priest to Pilate to Herod to Simon to the woman on the road to the thieves on the cross to the centurion to Joseph, let me ask one final time, what do you think of him? What if God is exactly like Jesus? And what if Jesus is the king we all need? The story isn't over yet. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. We'd love you to come back next week on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection. But for now, let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, As we consider this extraordinary act of love and self-sacrifice, our hearts are moved with awe and wonder. Lord God, if Jesus is God and did this for us, then he rightly deserves our souls, our lives, our all. So may we respond to your son, to your anointed king with worship and adoration, Father. May we come to him, whether it be for the first time or the 10,000th time, to give him the honor he deserves, for he is worthy of it all. Thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus does show us exactly what you are like. We acknowledge that he is the king that we all desperately need, for it's in his name that we pray.